Everybody, please take out a copy of God's Word. Open up to John chapter 17. We're considering verse 2 this morning. Page 902 in the Pew Bible, John 17, verse 2. Glory. So we talked about last week. The way of glory, and that's what we're talking about this week. Glory, or the, maybe more the, the why of glory this week. You know by now that the Hebrew word for glory means weightiness. You may have seen some of the local headlines a couple of weeks ago. Don't panic. But New York City is sinking. Why? Because of the massive weight of the city. There are over a million buildings in our city, and all those skyscrapers and other buildings like this one that we are so blessed to have, all of those add up to about 1.7 trillion tons of concrete and metal and glass, and all of that weight has an effect, it has an impact on the land. It's sinking. No need to abandon ship and break out the life jackets, yet we're sinking at a rate of one or two millimeters a year. But my thinking here is sort of like Hezekiah's in 1 Kings 2019, right? He's told that Babylonians are going to come and wipe out the kingdom after his reign. He's like, ah, oh, the word that the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? So we're safe. But the weight, a trillion, that's a million millions, 12 zeros. That is a lot of weight. And such weight cannot help but have an impact and an effect on the land. There's actually a scientific term for this. It's subsidence, which is that it's the downward movement of the Earth's surface, the, the sinking of the surface. Sub means under or beneath. Sidere means to sit or to settle or to sink. The point, great weight has great impact and effect. There are consequences of weightiness. It does something. And so it is meant to be with the glory of God. It does something. It has an impact and effect. At least it's supposed to when it's seen and recognized and felt and valued and loved. And so in this most wonderful and remarkable of chapters, in this prayer of prayers, Christ prays first and foremost that his glory would be revealed. And then he prays in verse 24 that you would see his glory. The sight of which, as we continue to piggyback on John Owen, is the universal remedy and cure. The only comfort for all our diseases, all that ails and troubles us. So what is it that is most ailing you and troubling you right now? What is your disease? And not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. Well, what is that right now? Owen says that a sight of the glory of Christ is the only remedy for whatever it is. And Christ here is revealing that glory and praying that you might see that glory. And yet... We are most of us still so caught up and consumed with those diseases and troubles. We have eyes and attention only for the bad, the hard, the loss, and the lack. And so instead of joy, we have sorrow. Instead of peace, we have anxiety. Instead of rest, we have exhaustion. Why? Maybe it's because we have not yet had a sight of the all-glorious 
Christ. Maybe it's because we don't know how, or, or we don't know how to hold on to it, or we don't know how to take that which is so wonderfully and gloriously good and clear here, and then apply it to what is often so miserable and difficult and bad and confusing in here and out there. And I know that this is a lot of my problem. We are a compartmentalized people. We are really good at sitting here and listening and nodding along and agreeing with everything, but once we step out there and we get punched in the face by our circumstances or our sin, we collapse to the ground and we seem to have no idea how to take any of this and apply it to any of that. It's almost as if there's this one thing here and that's another thing out there, never the twain shall meet. What's the solution? It's glory. It really is. It really is a true understanding and sight of Christ's glory by faith. It changes everything. The solution is not less glory, less theology, less pursuit of an understanding of who Christ is and what he has done, but more glory, right theology, aggressive, intentional pursuit of an understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. And then a spirit-empowered application of that to the whole of our lives. The suffering, the sin, the disappointment, the discouragement, all of it. So that's our goal this morning. It's more glory. We are going to persistently pursue it and passionately pray that God would open up our eyes and transform our lives as he shows us Christ. We're going to consider his glory in four parts this morning. Glory is big, it's transcendent, it's all-consuming. You need something big and transcendent to all-consume you. Consider what we learn about God and Christ in just our second verse. I want you to see first glory in sovereignty. Then we're going to consider glory in authority. Third, glory in election. And finally, getting us ready for next week, glory in eternal life. That's the plan. Sometimes our circumstances seem so big, now this is the case for me, but it's because our Christ seems so small. Right? Sometimes our eyes are entirely on our sorrows because they are entirely off our Savior. We need a bigger Christ, meaning we need a spirit-given ability to see him for who he truly is and what he has done in all his glory. That puts everything else in perspective and place. So let's seek to see it in John 17. We're focusing on verse 2 this morning. We read the whole thing last week. Let me read for you verses 1 through 5. Remember, that's part 1 of the prayer. Christ is praying for himself. I'll read 1 through 5. We're going to work on verse 2 this morning. But I encourage you to pay attention as I read. This is what God wants to say to you today. John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me 
in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray, and then we will begin. Father, I am about to speak and to preach and attempt to proclaim your word, to attempt to preach Christ and him crucified, to attempt to preach the glory of Christ. Father, I have no ability to open my own eyes or the eyes of anyone in this room to see that glory, to give thee the eyes of faith to see and understand and rest and rejoice in who Christ is and what he has done. Father, we have forgotten the glory of Christ multiple times throughout just this last week. We have seen big circumstances and hard things, and we have been consumed by those things, and we are so prone to forget these things and how those things um, are, should be read through the lens of these things. So, Father, please, please help us. Please show us. Christ, please do now in this time what I, what I cannot do. Um, Father, all I can do is prepare and preach the best that I can, but Father, my only hope is to pray and to rest and to trust and for you to work by your spirit through these words. Father, show us Christ. Reveal his glory to us. Encourage us and, and comfort us and give us great joy in Jesus. Uh, through this word this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Point number one is glory in sovereignty. Where's that coming from? Well, I've titled our sermon, Giving Glory. Why? Well, look at verse two. We're talking about glory, but you're probably grumbling because we're only doing one verse again. But look at this one verse. Grumble not. There is so much here. And this is a fascinating verse. I have no idea how to test this or check this, but I cannot think of another verse that consists of three verbs, and they're all the same word. Look at what Jesus says. He says, since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It's only three verbs. They're all the same. Give, give, give. So this would have made for a very easy three-point outline. The Father gives the Son authority. The Father gives the Son a people. The Son gives his people eternal life. That's our verse. But I have added a foundational fourth, first point, and it is sovereignty. Why? It's the giving and the repetition of the giving. You can't read give, give, give and not get, get, get what this verse is about. Sorry, I like that. It's, it's about giving. This verse is about God's giving. And God gives because God is sovereign. And so we're first seeking to see God's weightiness and his greatness in his sovereignty. But look at our points. Notice also how they're worded. Notice the preposition in them. Prepositions, remember, connect. Prepositions link one word to another. So we have here the preposition in connecting glory and sovereignty, and we can read that in two ways. And I want us to read that in two ways. We've seen that glory is a noun. It's the, the summary term for who God is as God. It's his majestic, transcendent, incomprehensible goodness and greatness. He is great. He is glorious. So it, it's all that God is as God himself. The, the sum and substance 
of all that he is as God. Infinite intrinsic worth, infinite intrinsic beauty, infinite intrinsic goodness and greatness. That's the noun glory. And so that's what we want to see first in each of our points. See the glory of God revealed in the fact of sovereignty and authority and election and eternal life. But glory is also a verb. We drew the distinction last week between the intrinsic glory of God, who he is in himself, and then the extrinsic glory of God, the, the, the showing and the shining forth, the, the manifestation and display of who he is as God. That's what we saw in verse 1. That's the verb. Jesus prays, glorify your son. So he's, he's saying, reveal me for who I am. Show forth my glory for all to see. So in each of our points, we want to first see the glory of God in each of these things, but then we want to apply each of these things. We want to move from noun to verb, and we want to glory in these things. I want you to not just learn about God's sovereignty. I want you to glory in God's sovereignty, to rejoice and rest in his sovereignty, authority, election, and eternal life. And it all starts with, and it has to start with sovereignty. So I'm arguing that it's the giving that is the revelation of the sovereignty. God gives, and it's what God gives that makes it clear that God is sovereign. I am very sad. I think I'm having seasonal, what is it, seasonal affective disorder. I'm sad because we're already entering back into election season. I can't believe there's another election already next year. Can we not get all worked up and obsessed and anxious and angry this time? Probably not. But guess what? All you're getting worked up, obsessed, anxious, and angry is going to accomplish nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing, except making you and probably me miserable. So let's apply the sovereignty of God to our poor political situation. That was a side note. But since we are once again likely to have no good options to elect from, we're coming to election in point three, but say that I was so convinced that none of the candidates were good options that I decided to go to our own Derek Holly and say to him, Derek, I have given to you the presidency of the United States of America. Right, he'd be better than the current options. But, yeah, you could clap for Derek. Derek does not like this at all. But Derek would rightly laugh in my face. And if I went and made that declaration at the White House, they would rightly arrest me. Why? Because I have no authority to give the presidency the authority of our nation to anyone, right? I don't get to give that. And so when Jesus says here that the Father has given him authority over all flesh, which is so much bigger than the authority of our presidency, if God can give that, it must then mean that the Father has the right and the authority and the ability to give him that authority, which means that God must be sovereign, absolutely sovereign. Right? We used to call kings and queens sovereigns, rulers. The sovereignty of God is just, it's, it's the rule and reign of, of God over, wait for it, Everything, absolutely 
everything. And there's no more important doctrine for you to know and love and live in light of. A couple of quick passages. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 is one of the classics. It's one of my favorites. Who is this God that we say that we worship here this morning? Why is he so glorious? Why should you glory in him? He tells you, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. A couple of the, the go-to passages are also found in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 2.20. Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Kings are sovereigns. Who can remove and set up kings? Only the king of kings, the sovereign of sovereigns. And then some beautiful irony in Daniel 4:34, the most powerful man in the world, the king of the time, Nebuchadnezzar, after being humbled by God, cries out, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That one gets me. How often do we say or at least think, what have you done? We don't get to say that. No one gets to say that for God is sovereign. He has all power and all authority over all things at all times. See his glory there. I see the power that is required to create everything and sustain everything, all by the word of his power. Sometimes I love while preaching to you, thinking of the 80 to 100 of you and thinking that God is, I, I'm trying to like read your faces and understand and that person's angry and that person's asleep and this person's kind of tracking. I, I can't do it. I can't keep up with all things. God is like intimately aware of and present with and tracking and knowing each and every one of the minds in this room, say 80 or so of them. Then you multiply that out to 8 billion minds, and then Jesus starts talking about birds dying and hairs falling from heads, and just the mind and the glory and the greatness of this God who is behind all of these things. That's glory. God is not like us. He's not just a better version of us. He is qualitatively different. And one of the things that we all need most is to think more and more accurately on the person of this all-glorious God. Spurgeon's famous sermon, made famous in, in Packer's Knowing God. Spurgeon says, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly approving, improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Would you lose your sorrows 
Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul as a devout musing upon the subject of God. He's right. I just don't know if we know exactly how to do that. And when I read that sermon, I'm convinced that Spurgeon had recently been reading Owen uh, when, he, when he wrote that sermon. You want to lose your sorrows and cares? You want to find comfort for your soul? Look to the glory of God. The glory of the sovereign God. Glory in the fact that he is in perfect control. Not just directing and guiding all things, but decreeing and determining all things. Perfectly in control and perfectly good. Promising to perfectly work every single little thing together for your good. There is such hope and comfort to be found in the sovereignty of God. And we all want comfort. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is your only comfort? What's your only comfort? I'm getting comfort from the fact that like, I, can, I can hang out tonight and rest and get a break. Tomorrow I have a day off. Um, maybe I'm not going to get bugged and I can rest and we can play video games or I can read a book or vacation's coming up or I've got a really good book. Where, where do you get comfort? Where do you pursue these things, rest and comfort? The question says, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation, because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Comfort. You find comfort in the fact that you are not your own but belong to this Christ. That nothing can happen to you apart from the will of the Father. Which means that everything that happens to you is the will of your Father and 1627, don't ever forget it, the Father himself loves you. So all of it, whatever it is, in some mysterious way, is ultimately an expression of his love for you. All things must work together for your salvation. That, that worst thing that is weighing on you right now, that one thing that you would change in a heartbeat, that one difficulty, suffering, if God is sovereign and if God is good, it will Work together for your eternal good. And all of this starts with the sovereignty of God. Spurgeon, once again, when you go through the trials and the troubles, the sovereignty of God is, is the pillow upon which you rest your head. Glory in that sovereignty. Rest in it. Give it all over to him. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Here is a giving glory of a sovereign God. Point number two, 
Let's consider now glory in authority. Go back to our verse and look at verse 2 again. Here's the question. What's the connection between verse 1 and verse 2? Look at it. This is important. Look at the first word of our text. Since. It's another preposition. It's another linking word. Kathos. Glorify your son, verse 1, since. The King James translates it as, as. The NASB goes with just as. A lot of translations just use for. Just as or for is probably best. The point is, is that verse 2 is the ground or the reason for the request in verse 1. Do this for this. Or glorify me, or give me glory, for you have given me authority. See, glory and authority go together. First, another aside, notice what Jesus is doing. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is the Christ at prayer. There's a lot that we can learn about prayer here. And this right here is an important prayer principle that we struggle with. To grasp. We're going to define and unpack authority in a moment, but what I want you to see is that authority over all flesh is, that's glorious. Yeah, so the authority of the, the strongest country in the world, that's amazing, that, that's glorious. But authority over all flesh, that's glorious. And as the all-glorious God, Christ, the Son of God, has authority. He, he has that. So in verse 1, Christ is praying and petitioning for that which is already his. That which the Father has already given to him, or at least already promised to him. So here we see an important prayer principle that has been largely lost today. And it's pray the promises of God. Pray the promises of God. We're seeking to expand our understanding of prayer and pray more biblically. Frequently, our prayers amount to little more than my kingdom come. When we are seeking to pray more, thy kingdom come. Frequently, all we pray for is what we want. When we are seeking to pray more, what he wants. Frequently, all we pray is what we desire. When we want to pray more and more, what God desires. And what God desires for us, God has revealed to us, in his promises to us, we must learn to pray the promises of God. Because guess what? 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes. They're yes in Christ. 2 Peter 1.3-4, listen to this. These are insane claims. What if we actually lived as if this was true? 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us some things that pertain to life and godliness. No, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? This is next week. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to what? To his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. I just—it should be a whole other sermon. But do you know? Do you know? And do you pray these very precious and great promises? There's 
There's so many of them. Some have counted thousands and thousands of them. Matthew 11:28. Jesus promises that if you come to him, you will find rest for your soul. Romans 8:28 promises that God will work all things together for your good. Philippians 4, 7 promises peace when you let your request be made known to God. And we're coming to the big one, eternal life, knowing God. Try praying the promises of God. Try praying a little bit less of what you have decreed and determined to be what you need and pray a little bit more what God has decreed and determined what you need. God will, God must do what he has said and promised to do. And listen, the things that he has said and promised to do are so much better than the things that we tend to ask for. Pray in line with those promises. Ask him for that which he has promised to give. For that which he has promised to give is what you really need, and what you really need is the sight of the glory of Christ. And verse 24, that's what Christ prays for you. Not that you'd have it easy, not that everything would go smooth, not that you'd get all the things that you want. He prays for you 2,000 years ago that you would see his glory. So pray God's promises, because that's what Christ is doing here. But back on track. We're seeing his glory here in his authority. What is it? There's not enough time. Go watch Peter's Sunday School from May 21st. It's on YouTube. By what authority? But authority is closely connected to sovereignty. And authority answers the question, well, says, says who? Authority is the, the right and the power to command and compel, to, to rule and require. Who's in charge? And who should and must we listen to? That's authority. And Peter argued brilliantly in that Sunday school that authority is the fundamental question when it comes to the question of true and false religion. And true and false religion is the difference between life and death. And the difference between these things is authority. What is the authority in your life? Jesus. All right, great. But what's the actual authority in your life? Who's in charge? Everything comes down to this. And yet, this is one of the things that most characterizes our current cultural moment, the denial of any authority outside of the self. I mean, come on, June is, has become and is celebrated as Pride Month. And this word, pride, is it's the chief sin in Scripture. Pride is the, the declaration that I and I alone am the authority in my life. I get to decide. And declare, I and I alone have the power and the right to rule my life. That's pride, and that's the essence of sin. There's no authority above me. There's no authority outside me. I am my authority. And yet here comes Christ in verse 2, making one of those comprehensive, controversial, confrontational, crazy claims. You have given me authority over all flesh. No one else speaks like that. No one else makes the claims that Christ claims. 
He is claiming here to be the sovereign authority over any and every person who has ever lived. All flesh. He is claiming to be the sovereign authority over you. The authority over you and your life. And just simple logic, it's either true or false. If true, then you should and must bow down to him as Lord. And if it's not true, what are you doing here? This man was nothing. This man was monster if he made such claims about himself and they weren't true. There's no, there's no middle road option when it comes to this Christ. The one thing that you cannot do is be unaffected by the weight of this glory. Oh, by the way, I have been given authority over everyone who has ever lived, ever. See his glory in his authority. We've seen 3.35 a number of times already. John 3.35, the father loves the son, but we haven't kept going. It says the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. All things. Matthew 28.18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You would be wise to give yourself to the one who has been given all authority. John 5, 27. And he, the Father, has given the Son of Man authority to execute judgment. You would be foolish to reject and deny the one who has been given all authority to execute judgment. See the glory of Christ in his authority over all flesh. And the fact that the Father has, has given him that authority. I'm not 100% sure about this. Think about that for a second. As I said, he is the Son of God. So we know that he's co-equal, co-eternal with God. So we know that as the Son, he is sovereign. He already has authority. What then can it mean for the Father to, to give the Son authority? Yeah, we know that he already has it. The Son already has it. I think what's going on here is that Jesus, the Christ, the God-man, has to be given the authority by God the Father. I think this is a reference to the incarnation, to the agreement between the Father and the Son, for the Son to take on flesh, to come and become the second Adam, and to accomplish the work, verse 4, that the Father gave him. So see his glory here. Not only does the Christ, the Son of God, have all authority, but Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, truly God and truly man, has all authority. So you can see his glory even in his humanity here. This man, Jesus, about to be given into the hands of the authorities, about to be given a sham trial, about to be given shame and torture, about to be given a cross and given over to death, is the same man who was first given authority over all flesh, as the man is also God, come for a very specific and very glorious purpose. What is this glorious purpose? Point number three, glory in election. You thought I was going to say eternal life. Of course, that's next and next week. But what we need to see first is that there is no eternal life without election. I wonder which causes more conflict 
and contention, our current presidential elections, or God's eternal biblical election. As much as I hate the division caused by our conflict over political elections, I am far more saddened by the division caused by our conflict over biblical election. But listen, this, this is meant to be one of the clearest revelations of God's glory, which is meant to be the universal remedy and cure and comfort. I want you to see the glory in and find comfort in the doctrine of election. You know, all, all that we are called to do is to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. Doesn't matter what you think, doesn't matter what I think, what does God think, and what has he revealed in his word, and he has revealed in that word very clearly his authority in election. And so instead of qualifying and apologizing and being embarrassed by election, we want to glory in God's election. If God does it, it's good. We need to get over some of these things and see the goodness of this. So look at the text again. Look at verse 2. Christ asks to be glorified for you have given him authority over all flesh. To what end? To do what? To give eternal life. We've got to stop there first. We've got to see his glory there. What can be more glorious than life? What can be more glorious than the capital L life giving life to the dead through his death? And remember, this is what the whole book is about. 2031. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life. Life is literally everything. Life is what you are looking for. But the implication of Christ's prayer and of John's purpose statement is that apart from Christ, we don't have life. Uh, nothing will make any sense until we get this point first. Life won't make any sense, and this won't be beautiful and glorious until we get that left to ourselves, we only have death. Some of you in this room are dead. I lived 20 years of my life dead, spiritually dead, until the Son of God intervened. Some of you still are, and it's because of sin, the wages of which is death. This whole thing that we're doing, this, this whole Jesus thing, all that I am saying here, all that we're about here, doesn't make any sense apart from the biblical doctrine of sin. The truth of which no one can honestly deny. You can just look at our world, just look at our hearts. Sin and death and evil and injustice reign everywhere. And we've been discussing the universal remedy and cure, and that is necessary and needed because the problem and disease is equally universal. For all have sinned. There is none righteous. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And this is why the doctrine of election is such glorious and comforting good news. It's pretty simple. Dead doesn't do. Corpse cannot choose. So look at verse 2 again. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. Here it is. 
to all whom you, Father, have given him. That's the doctrine of election. And we're going to have ample opportunity to consider this further. I am not going to answer all of your objections right now. I would be happy to talk with you after the service. But what I want you to see is how often Christ emphasizes this in his final words, just in this last prayer to the Father. Note the persistent particularity of Christ's prayer. We just read it in verse 2. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look at verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Look at 24. Again, here is again what Christ prays for you. Praise for who? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. So it, it cannot be argued. The Father has given the Son a people. Flip back to chapter 10. It's very clear in chapter 10. It's an important passage. Why has Jesus come? Look at the end of verse 10, John 10.10. 10. Here it is, a whole week, next week. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, see the glory here. See that there is abundant life offered to you in Christ now. One of the things we really need to hit next week is that, that eternal life is not just a, a quantitative thing. It's not just life forever, on and on and on. It's, it's, it's a qualitative thing. It's a, it's a new, abundant life. And that starts now. That's promised to you by Christ. It's yours if you will only learn how to realize and actualize it. It starts with seeing Christ's glory. Well, seeing it where? Look at verse 11. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Like literally, that verse doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. If a, sh if a shepherd willingly lays down his life for the sheep, then all the sheep die because there's no shepherd guarding the sheep anymore, and then the wolves come and eat the sheep. What's so good about this? Why is this good shepherd intentionally laying down his life for his sheep? Shepherds lead, they, they feed, they protect and provide, and he does it by laying down his life. Why? Well, it's because of all that we just discussed. It's because the wages of sin is death. The wage, the debt, must be paid. The good news of the gospel summarized here is that Christ has come to pay that sin and death debt for his people. He dies for us. He takes our place. He takes our death. He gives us his life. All that sin, millions upon millions of sin and the great weight of wrath that I deserve for all of those sins of the whole of my life, God takes those and he places them on Christ. And he dies. And he rises again. And then he gives us his life. That's the gospel. 
And that's the glory of Christ most clearly revealed. And that is what everyone in this room most needs to see and hear and believe and receive. Believe that you are a sinner and believe that he is the only Savior. Now skip down to verse 26. John 10, 26. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. These are the smart guys. These are the moral guys. These are the, the religious ones. But what we see throughout John is that they are the ones opposed to Jesus. They are the ones that are about to try and arrest him in verse 39 and will eventually um, succeed in having him murdered. But first, Jesus says to them in 1026, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The order and the grammar of that verse are so important to get. I mean, look at it closely. He does not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Look at 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So it, just, it cannot be argued. You cannot stand within Scripture and argue against this. The Father has given the Son a people. It's all over chapter 6 as well, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, so it's an effective giving. And whoever comes to me, oh, I will never cast out. Amen. 634, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And all that we're seeing here in these verses and in this point is that the logical outworking of the sovereignty of God applied to the salvation of sinners. God's sovereignty must include God's sovereignty in salvation. And God's sovereignty in salvation must include the fact that he, the sovereign Lord, chooses whom will be saved. God owes us nothing. God owes no man mercy. God is not dealing with a group of neutral or even relatively good people and then just arbitrarily choosing to save some of them. No, he is dealing with the whole of the human race dead in trespasses and sins. All of us willfully rebellious and rejecting him. And he freely and graciously chooses to save some. And it's not, it's not based on anything in us. It's not because we are lovely, but entirely because he is love and he is grace and he is Kindness. But, you, know, we, you know, some people just hate this doctrine. And it's for a number of reasons. But a big part of that reason is because we are so prone to love and elevate ourselves and our own goodness and ability. And again, we're no different. We're, we're, we're prone to this as well, to elevate ourselves in this way. And because we are all of us so prone to relativize and minimize the nature and the horror and the wretchedness of sin. I drive my six girls south, Melissa and the five girls south, next week, and I drop them off and come back. And about 10 hours into the drive, we'll hit eastern North Carolina. We'll be on 17 in the middle of nowhere. And it'll start to be about every single mile 
so-and-so Free Will Baptist Church, so-and-so Free Will Baptist Church, so-and-so Free Will Baptist Church. And the irony and the tragedy of naming an entire denomination after man and after man's ability and man's sovereignty should not be missed. It, wouldn't be, it would not be a lot different uh, than if I came into our next members meeting and proposed in the pastor's report that we should rename our church Matthew Shores Community Church. Right? Parentheses Baptist, of course. No. Our only hope is God's grace. Our only hope is God's willingness and gladness to save some out of the mess that we have all of us made with our sin. And now, of course, yes, we are free in the sense that no one compels and constrains our choices and decisions. We are responsible, moral agents. Reformed theology is often accused of making man robots. That's silly. The distinction is often made like this. We have natural freedom or ability. We have natural freedom or ability to live and to choose and to do. But here's the key. We, all of us, only do what we desire. I'm reading uh, Jonathan Edwards' biography right now. His, his Freedom of the Will is probably the most important book written about this. And he, he defines freedom in the book uh, as the mind choosing. Yes, you have a mind. And it chooses. And it does so freely. You have natural freedom. But you always only ultimately do what you desire. You always only choose according to what you ultimately love. Ephesians 2.3, what's the result of being dead in trespasses? We all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's how we use our freedom in our sin. We carry out the sinful desires of our fallen body and mind. We are sinners, and so we sin. Because John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And slaves, by definition, are not free. And so, yes, we have natural freedom, but we do not have spiritual or moral freedom. We do not have the ability or the freedom to choose the God of life because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, enslaved to those sins, and dead doesn't do. But God, but grace, this is the gospel. You remove this and you really hinder and hamper the gospel. Here's God's saving, choosing, electing, affecting grace that comes in and does what is utterly impossible for dead, enslaved sinners to do. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I see God's glory there. It's just so clear. And if God is clearly revealing it, it is clearly good. You weren't sick. 
You weren't just a little bit off needing a little bit of help. You were dead and enslaved to sin and Satan, entirely not free to do anything of lasting spiritual eternal good. You were incapable of life but God. The glory of the gospel is that God did everything, everything that was required to save you and give you that life. Much of my problem, I think, when I was kind of growing up, and I wasn't saved until early 20s, but I was coming out of this one theological world, and I was saved by the grace of God, and not really understanding this other theological world yet, but there was just this little part of me that was still holding on to this little subconscious, like, 1%. Like, look, this is amazing. God's done all these things, and now here's what I've got to do in light of those things. And it, it was crippling. I have a very clear conversation. It's kind of embarrassing. I don't like to cry. I don't cry. But I have one very clear conversation at Townhouse Apartments in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. They have been leveled because they were so disgusting. And we were living in them, but it was all that we could afford. But we had this little yard out front, and I remember walking in circles for a couple of hours, weeping on the phone with my father, trying to understand. Like, how, I don't, how do I know this to be? I don't get it, and I don't understand. And part of it was just this. I did not understand the fact that God's grace is so beautifully comprehensive. I was wretchedly, uh, my, my wretchedness was comprehensive in my sin. And it was until I could understand how big and comprehensive God's grace was. It was only then that I could begin to start to rest and to rejoice and to live in light of that. He's done everything. He loved you and he chose you. And he predestined you to be his child before the foundation of the world. Christian, fix your mind on that. Fill your mind with that. Stop considering your present circumstances without considering that. Your eternal circumstances in Christ entirely by grace when you did entirely nothing for it. There is so much glory there. And there is so much comfort there. See the glory of Christ in his sovereign saving election. Point number four, don't panic. This is just next week. All I want to do is point us ahead and get us ready. Glory in eternal life. In verse two, the father has given to the son a people and the authority to give to that people eternal life. Look at verse three. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What a verse. It must have a whole sermon. So I want you to be considering this week, in preparation for next Sunday, in verse 3, nice and simple, be considering, do I possess eternal life? Pretend like we're going to take the service next week and each and every person in here is going to sit down with me and Pastor Mike and we're going to ask you, do you possess eternal life? And if your answer is yes, then why? And how do you know? Surely we agree on this, right? There is no more important question. If there is such a thing as a soul, and it is eternal, and there is such a place as heaven and hell, eternal life, eternal death, eternal joy, eternal misery, nothing can matter more than this. Do you possess eternal life? And do you know? And how do you know? Consider also this week, if you are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory... Saved through a sight of the glory of Christ. What, what effect, what impact is that glory having on your life? Remember, character and conduct. Remember the fruit that God is producing in chapter 15 is Christ-like 
character and conduct. That's what the eternal weight of glory does. That's its effect and impact. Just like 1.7 trillion pounds of weight cannot help but have an impact on the land, the infinitely greater weight of the glory of Christ cannot help but have an impact on life and your life, the life of those who are actually in Christ. If there's no effect and no impact, we've got to consider why that is. And we're going to hit that hard next week. So read verse 3, meditate on it, and pray and come back for verse 3. But for now, let me close you with 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you are welcome to, but this will be the last thing I'll say. Second Corinthians 3, 4, and 5 are just wonderful. Second Corinthians 3, I forgot to write down the page number. Sorry. Look at the end of verse 17. Second Corinthians 3, 17. You want to be free? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So no spirit, no freedom. Now verse 18. Here's the glory. See it. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. That's what the glory of Christ does. When by the grace of God, through the work of the Spirit, uh, applied to us through faith, when you see it, you're transformed by it. You're slowly, we're stubborn, it's our fault, it's sin, but we're slowly transformed and made more and more like Christ. More and more that abundant life and his joy and that eternal life affecting now that we're going to see next week. Have you seen it? Are you finding comfort and cure in it? See it in his sovereignty, his authority, his election, and the eternal life that he gives. See it in and through his word. This is no glory, no word. Read, think, pray, and speak that word. This is, this is the medium of the glory. And flipping to 4.16 of 2 Corinthians, look at this. If all that's true, you're seeing that. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's the application. Stop looking to and living in light only of the things that are seen. And start looking to and living in light of the glory of the Christ who is our life. And then live abundantly and joyfully because you have access to the universal remedy and cure. There is infinite glory in Christ. Have you seen it? Have you seen him? Let me pray that we would all of us more and more look and live. Let's pray. Father, we ask now again that you would do the thing that is impossible for us to do for ourselves. We ask that you would give us spiritual sight and the eyes to see the glory of Christ that is revealed through your living and active word that you have promised does not return to you void. And so we ask, Father, that you would work now through that word, that you would comfort 
hearts, that you would illuminate minds, that you would see, that we would see your sovereignty and that we would glory and rest and rejoice in the goodness of that sovereignty and the fact that we have no hope if you are not absolutely sovereign and absolutely good. Thank you for how clearly you demonstrate both of those things at the cross. Father, where your perfect control comes together with your perfect justice and your perfect love to do the only thing possible for sinners like us to be saved and to live, which is for Jesus Christ, our substitute, our Savior, our Lord, and our life to die and rise again that we might live. Father, help us to look not at the things that are seen, but to look at that, Lord, and to not live any minute apart from the revelation of your glory and of your grace in Jesus Christ. Father, show us Christ. Help us, as a result of this day, to understand just a little bit more who he is and what he has done, how good he is and how good it is of what he has done for us. And Father, help us this week as we return to the world and as we return to the troubling circumstances and the sin that remains Father, help us to have eyes fixed upon Christ and upon his glory, we ask only in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.